Where's that new usher? Where's the new usher? Where's the new usher? Get in here. There he is right there. Does anybody need a Bible? We've got, we've got some folks in here that need a Bible. Good grief, man. First day on the job. Where are you at? <laughs> anybody need a back scratch? Raise your shoulder rub. No, raise your... Bob and Lewis, I weren't talking. I wasn't talking about you. Please, please understand. Thank you. There. I told him there'd be a little usher hazing today. He, he needed to know that for the new ushers. We're in Matthew chapter nineteen. Matthew chapter nineteen. Mark Zuckerberg is rich. His fortune is valued at one and a half billion dollars. Mark Zuckerberg is young. Forbes magazine says that at age 23, he is the world's youngest billionaire. Mark Zuckerberg is a ruler. He is the CEO of a social network of 66 million users called Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg is rich and young, and a ruler. And he's also Jewish. Just like the man we have here in Matthew chapter 19 who approaches Jesus. Luke tells us that this man was a ruler, probably a ruler in the synagogue. In verse 20, Matthew calls him young. And from the conversation we gather that he was rich. Put it all together and you have a rich, young ruler who approaches Jesus. This man is a rising star. He's the epitome of success. He's a model for young Jewish professionals. You know, juppies. If he walked into most churches, he'd be made, made an elder on the spot. I mean, my, he's moral, he's religious, and he'll give lots of money. Quick, put him on the board before he checks out another church. And yet Jesus... He handles this man very differently than we might. Verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now notice his mindset from the beginning. He's into what he can do. What he can earn. What he can prove. What he can accomplish. This man is a go-getter. He's yet to be broken and humbled. He thinks that even eternal life is a commodity you can earn. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Now this man had addressed Jesus as good teacher, which, is, which was extravagant language for a first century Jew. The adjective good was used to describe good in its perfect sense. It was usually only associated with God. And so in essence, Jesus is asking this young man, In calling me good, are you calling me God? Are you ready to bow your life to another? Are you ready, young man, to relinquish control of your life to God? Now Jesus cuts right to the core here. I think his question must have put this man back on his heels. Jesus was perceptive. 
He knew the hearts of the people with whom he spoke. He understood the issue that would keep them from stepping over to get faith. And he knows the pivotal matter in this young man's life. It's not what he does. He's got all that down. He knows what to do. The issue is not what he does. The issue is who he worships. Right now, he worships himself. He likes to be in control. And note this point. You can be religious and still be in rebellion. The rich young ruler has faith, has no faith in God. His faith is in himself and in what he can do to earn God's favor. You see, religion for him is a tool that he can use to dictate his own fate. God has nothing good, nothing to do about it. It's all about him being good. Now, he said of the commandments, he said, which ones? He's still focusing now on keeping commandments. Keep that in mind. And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice Jesus lists the second table of the law of Moses, the last half of the Ten Commandments. You see, the second table dealt with man's relationship with his fellow man. But this is not where this man has the problem. His issue is with the first table of the, law, of the Ten Commandments. The commandments that dealt with his relationship with God. You see, the problem was he worshipped another God, namely himself. Verse 20 contains such a revealing statement. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Understand, this young man had been a lifelong observer of the law of Moses, yet he realizes something is still lacking. You know, it goes to show, when you try to be good enough for heaven, you can never be good enough. This man knows that. The cost of God's favor is too steep. Heaven is impossible to earn. The other night at Mac's baseball game, uh, we were over at Parkview, I think. We were sitting there, and all of a sudden, a, a country song came on. I recognized it. It was by Alan Jackson. It's called, Where I Come From. And here's the chorus of the song. Where I come from, there's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, there's a lot of front porch sitting. Where I come from, we're trying to make a living. And working hard to get to heaven. Where I come from. You know, that's the mentality of a lot of people where I come from, here in the South particularly, just like the rich young ruler, they work hard and they do stuff and they keep rules expecting to earn a ticket to heaven. This ruler who's into rules is about to learn that heaven ain't for workers, it's for believers. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, and the word means complete. In essence, Jesus is saying, if you want to have it all together spiritually, then go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to a specific person at a specific time and in a specific place. This is not a blanket statement to everyone who's interested in eternal life. I mean, divesting all of your material wealth is not the universal requirement for salvation. Listen carefully. You don't have to go and sell all that you have to receive eternal life. Unless what you have is what's standing between you and God. 
In the case of this rich young ruler, Jesus is applying repentance. With his keen insight, Jesus is looking into this man's soul and he's sizing him up. He knows that the issue in this man's life is money and materialism. And in essence, Jesus is saying, no one can serve two masters. Here's the lesson for you and I. Salvation is by faith. But real faith means getting rid of all our other gods. You can't say, Jesus, you're God, if you're holding on and worshiping all these other idols. You have to trust Jesus exclusively. Real faith means dumping your idols. For this man, his idol was his money. What's your idol? Is it sports? Cars? Or a job? Or career? Or sex? We're tempted to water down the words of Jesus here in this story, but we shouldn't. Yes, Jesus doesn't tell us to go and sell all that we have and give them to the poor. But that's what he told this man to do. And he meant what he said. You see, Jesus sets the terms for every man's eternal salvation. I think Jesus looks into the heart of every person. And he knows the issue that needs to be addressed in that person. He knows the rival to his love and affection and to worship that needs to be uprooted in that person's life. And Jesus is very good at putting his finger on just the right issue. He says to us all, for me to be your Savior, you must let me be your Lord. Verse 22 provides the sad ending of the story. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. But that might not have been the ending of the story. For there is a tradition, I can't remember where I read it, that this rich young ruler was a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. The Saul who would later become Paul. Paul was in Judea during the ministry of Jesus. He was young, he was rich, he was a ruler of the Jews. He fits the description It's certainly provocative to think that perhaps this young man was Saul, who later was brought down on the road to Damascus and gave his life to Jesus. We don't know. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now understand, Jews considered riches a sign of God's blessing. The Jews had their own form of prosperity theology. But Jesus throws a wrench into their doctrine. Yes, riches can be a blessing. And there are rich men in the Bible. Abraham and Boaz and Joseph of Arimathea were all rich men who were men of faith. But for most rich men, riches are more a barrier than they are a blessing. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, possessions have a very slippery way of taking possession of our heart. If the rich young ruler was Paul, it's interesting that he would later write to Timothy these words of warning. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Jesus says in verse 24, And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man 
to enter the kingdom of God. The Jewish Talmud spoke of an elephant trying to pass through the eye of a sewing needle. The Talmud was written in Babylon where there were elephants. There were no elephants in Israel, and so Jesus modifies the saying to a camel. A large animal passing through the eye of a sewing needle was a colloquial way of stressing an extreme difficulty. In this case, as Jesus put it, a rich man entering into heaven. Now there's another possible interpretation here. Bible commentator G. Campbell Morgan, he writes this, Possibly by the needle's eye, our Lord referred to the small gate of a city through which no camel could pass except by being unloaded and bending down in order to gain entrance. In other words, after dark, the large gates would be closed and the only way into the city was the needle gate. But it was a smaller gate and thus the camel had to be unpacked and unloaded and it had to be bowed down and brought in on its knees. And of course, this would apply to a rich man, wouldn't it? He can't enter heaven, but only after he's willing to unload and unpack his baggage and bow his knee to Jesus Christ. Well, he says, when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? And, and you know, this should be the reaction of everyone in this room tonight. Especially everyone living in America. Because we think of a rich man as somebody living off in a country club somewhere. But compared to 95% of the people in this world, everybody in this room tonight is a rich person. And unless we're careful, we can allow our hearts to get entangled with material treasure. It's been said, the rich man worships what he has. The poor man worships what he wishes he had. But both are bowing at the same altar and to the same God. The disciples ask, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Actually, the salvation of any man is a human impossibility. Salvation is supernatural. It is a miracle from beginning to end. It takes the Almighty God to call and convict and draw and deliver and cleanse. Salvation is a human possibility, impossibility made possible by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Well, then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you, therefore what shall we have? You know, the disciples had done what the rich young ruler had failed to do. They had left it all and decided to follow Jesus. And Peter wants to know if they'll be rewarded for their sacrifice. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now obviously when you and I read about the stories concerning Jesus' disciples. We take those stories and we apply them to us today. For today, we are His disciples. But never forget, the first 12 disciples had a unique place in God's kingdom. A place that you and I will never sit. Revelation 21 verse 14 tells us that on the 12 foundations of the New Jerusalem, there appear the names of the twelve apostles. In other words, those first twelve were given a very special honor. 
Here we're told that when Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth, the first 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones and they'll govern the 12 tribes of Israel. This is why it always kind of creeps me out to hear modern day preachers, you know, claim to have the same apostolic authority as Peter and as John. To me, that's dangerously presumptuous. Those first 12 have a very special place in God's kingdom. Well, Jesus continues to address the sacrifice made by his disciples. He says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Mark says, Who shall receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come? eternal life. In other words, the rewards of serving Christ are both temporal and eternal. Now that we've been guaranteed, not that we will ever be guaranteed fame and fortune. In fact, Jesus promises us persecution, does he not? But he's saying that if we serve him with all our heart, if we leave behind friends and family for the sake of Christ, we will find friends and family in the body of Christ that we never knew existed. That if we leave lands, we'll find things, we'll find blessings in our following of Christ that we never knew existed. We'll be rewarded with new friendships, a spiritual family, and we'll receive love that will far surpass, even a hundredfold surpass, the friendships we gave up to follow Jesus. Jesus does promise His servants both eternal life and a better life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now when my kids were younger, we would teach them this verse. And they understood what it said, but that didn't mean they grasped what it meant. I remember with Zach and Natalie, one of them would push the other to the front of the line, and they would insist on going last. And we'd hear it over and over again. No, you, no, you go first because I want to go first in heaven. They kind of knew what it said, but they didn't really grasp what it meant. I mean, they were haughty trying to be humble. And, and I think this was the disciples' attitude here. I mean, these men had left all to follow Jesus, but now they want to know what's in it for them. They've become haughty in their humility. You know, they're focused on the payday not on the right way. You know, what are we going to get out of this sacrifice? And chapter 20 goes on to discuss heavenly rewards. You know, heaven is going to hold lots of surprises. It really will. Some of earth's rich young rulers won't be doing much ruling and won't have much riches in heaven. Heaven's highest posts will be occupied by people that have largely been unknown on earth. Heavenly rewards are doled out differently than earthly rewards. In the kingdom of God, the rules change. And Jesus illustrates this with a parable here in chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning. Now that was around 6 o'clock. That's when they started their work day. 6 a.m. To hire laborers for his vineyard. But when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, Middle Eastern agreements involved lots of haggling. 
you've ever been with us to Jerusalem and bought anything in the market, you know that haggling is expected. In Israel, nobody, nobody pays the asking price. You know why God created Gentiles, don't you? Somebody's got to pay retail. I mean, I mean, that's the attitude. I mean, everybody expects you to haggle and negotiate whenever you're buying something in the Middle East. And wages were no different. Here they, they haggle back and forth, the, the landowner and his workers, and, and they try to agree on a wage. Finally, they settle on a denarius for a day's labor. A denarius was a day was the same salary that was paid to a Roman soldier. And so it was a very good, it was a very fair day's wage. And he went out about the third hour. Now we're up to 9 a.m. in the morning. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. Notice, notice the agreement this time. Not a denarius a day. Whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Now again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. Now we're talking noon, three in the afternoon. And did likewise. This hiring is going on all throughout the day. And about the 11th hour, the workday ended. They, they did 12-hour shifts, and so it ended at 6 p.m. Thus, the 11th hour was quitting, just about quitting time, 5 in the afternoon. The landowner went out, and he found others standing idle. This is 5 in the afternoon. He goes out and gets more workers. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. And so he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, you will receive. Now listen, they worked 60 minutes. While the first hires of the day were at it for 12 long hours. Now, this was a common scenario in the days of Jesus. The foreman of a vineyard had quotas. And he was under pressure to harvest a certain volume of grapes every single day. And if he suspected bad weather later in the afternoon, or if the workers were falling behind and not gathering enough, then he would go out back to the labor pool, even in the middle of the day, even toward the end of the day. And he would recruit more workers. He would bring in more reinforcements. But what happens next is the surprise. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. I mean, these last-minute pickups, they felt like they'd hit the jackpot. They got a whole day's pay for 60 minutes in the field. This was a bonanza. And this, no doubt, raised the expectations of the guys who'd been sweating since six I mean, if the late arrivals get a full day's pay, surely those that have been laboring all day are going to get 12 times their original wage. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner. They felt ripped off. Cheated, robbed in the workplace. They want to unionize. They're into filing a grievance with the NLRB. This is a clear violation of fair labor practices. 
they complained against the landowner. They said to the landowner, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? In other words, you wanted a contract? I mean, you, you remember that haggling? You remember your insistence on a set wage? You wanted a contract? You got a contract. How can I be cheating you when all I'm doing is honoring the contract that you signed? Good question. He says, take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. And here's the landowner's justification. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. Boy, here is a parable packed with some very, very important lessons. Notice first, a harvest is underway. And the same is true of us today. A harvest of souls is going on around us. And God needs laborers to enter into the field. And by the way, it's the 11th hour. And Jesus is asking his followers, why have you been standing here idle all day? You know, idleness is a sin, especially when the hour is so late. Oh, how we need to have a burden for the lost people around us. How we need to be laboring. We're in a harvest and we're toward the end of the day. Second, I want you to notice that it's never too late to get started. This is good news. You know, some of you have been serving the Lord all of your life. You started at 6 a.m. as a young child. Others of you started at 9 a.m. as a teenager. Or maybe noon as an adult. Perhaps some of you have waited until the 11th hour. You've wasted most of your life living in sin. But now in your later years, you are serving the Lord. Hey, this parable delivers good news. No matter your age, it's never too late. And when you start at the end, who knows if you won't maybe get the same reward as the guy who's been working in the field all day. That's good news. Hey, let me give you three more points. Remember, the main purpose of this parable is to teach us how heavenly rewards are doled out. How do we receive heavenly rewards? And here are three words that you should write down. Three words. Faith, focus, and freedom. Write those words down. Faith, focus, and freedom. These are three words important when it comes to receiving heavenly rewards. Notice the difference between the 6 a.m. workers and the 11th hour workers. The early birds had haggled and negotiated. They wanted a guaranteed contract. Whereas the later laborers trusted in the owner's character. Notice they just took him at his word. You remember what he said? He said, well, whatever's right, I'll give it to you. And they trusted him. They said, okay, we believe in your character. We don't need a contract. We, we, we'll just take you at your word. That's enough for us. And this is how heavenly rewards work. Guys, it is grace that brings us the heavenly reward. Not justice. Not fairness. It's grace. Grace is better than fairness. 
I hope you're not foolish enough to settle on what's fair. I hope you're not saying to God, well, God, I just want what's fair. <laughs> you're going to get hell. <laughs> if you want what's fair, he's going to send you to hell. With the things you've done, the sins you've committed. I mean, you don't want fairness, friend. You want grace. You want love that's on the house. You want love that you can do nothing to deserve or earn or receive. That, that's a gift, a free gift to you from God. Don't ever settle for fairness. Have faith in God's generosity and in God's grace. Hey, when it comes to receiving heavenly rewards, always better, it's, it's better to trust in God's character and depend on His generosity and rely on faith and grace than it is to want a guarantee from God. God will always surprise you and He'll always be good. But notice too, if the early morning workers had kept their focus off of the latecomers, they would have gone home happy. The jealousy crept in when they looked to the other person's reward and not to their own reward. You know, when we used to go out in the driveway and play basketball, you know, the older boys had to obey the rules of basketball. I mean, they couldn't double dribble, they couldn't travel, they couldn't just take the ball and run in and shoot it. You know, they had to dribble. They had to, they had to play basketball. I had to play basketball. But at the time, Mac, he was just this little guy, and he, you know, he was shorter than everybody else, and he was at an unfair disadvantage. He was playing with his dad and two older brothers. And so I would always let Mac kind of run in, and he could run around. He could get the ball and run around and shoot it, you know, anytime he wanted. He could foul his brothers with pretty much immunity. But they would always, Jack and Nick, they would always start screaming, It's not fair! How come he fouls us and I can't foul him? How come he double dribbles and I don't get to dribble? And they couldn't understand the difference between the two. Hey, when God chooses to be gracious to one of his kids, it doesn't mean that he's being unfair with the rest of his kids. It just means that, that with that one child, there may be some extenuating circumstances. There may be something special that God is doing in that, in that person's life that, that he wants to accomplish. You know, maybe he's younger. Maybe he's disadvantaged in some way. But God, is, God deals with each one of us individually, and we really get in trouble when we take our focus off ourselves and God and start putting it on other people. That's what this parable teaches us. The parable emphasizes our faith, our focus, and God's freedom. It teaches us God's sovereignty. God can allocate His rewards as God well pleases. As Jesus put it, Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? I mean, it's the landowner's money. And he can do as he pleases with his own money. Here's the bottom line. All that we receive from God is more than we deserve. If God, for whatever reason, chooses to be more generous with one person over the other person, that's his prerogative. Who are we to argue with God's choices? Faith, focus, freedom. Verse 17. Now Jesus going on to Jerusalem. This was his final pilgrimage to Jerusalem before his crucifixion. Took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And deliver him to the Gentiles 
to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. And it all went in one ear and right out of the other for the disciples. I mean, Jesus is explaining his death while the disciples are thinking about his kingdom. And the Lord's Lord's focus is on his passion. The disciples are fixated on their own promotion. That's what we find next. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. Now the lady's name was Salome. And her two sons were named James and John. And Mark's gospel seems to imply that the two boys put her up to this stunt. I mean, they're thinking in their minds, how can Jesus turn down a mom on her knees? Salome comes worshiping Jesus only because she wants something from Jesus. And I wonder how many of us, that's what motivates our worship rather than a pure heart and a pure love for Him. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. Now notice their mom asked, but Jesus answered James and John. He's talking directly to them. Obviously they were behind her request. And Jesus tells them that he's about to drink the cup of suffering. He's about to be baptized in the salt water of persecution. Are James and John also willing to suffer persecution? I mean, those who are great in the kingdom are those who are willing to follow in Jesus' footsteps. There's an old Roman coin that has pictured on it an ox in the middle, flanked by an altar on one side and a plow on the other side. In the inscription on the coin reads, ready for either. You see, the goal of Christian discipleship is to be ready for either. To drink the cup of sacrifice in one gulp, the cup of Christian martyrdom, or to be willing to sip from the cup of sacrifice every day, a little at a time, and to lay down my life in faithful service. We need to be ready for either service or sacrifice. You know, when I read Jesus' words here, it sobers me. I wonder if I'm really ready. If I were called on to suffer for Jesus' sake, to even die for Jesus' sake, would I be ready? It surprises me how presumptuous James and John were, how confident they were of themselves. They said to him, we are able. They had refused to even think about the cross. And now they're ready to carry one? It's interesting, in Acts chapter 12, we read that James was the first of the disciples to be martyred. King Herod killed James with a sword. He did drink the cup of suffering. And years later, John also was asked to drink this cup. He was arrested by the emperor Domitian and was boiled in hot oil. John miraculously survived. Apparently he was a hard-boiled guy. He was eventually exiled to the island of Patmos. But both James and John did indeed end up drinking deeply from this cup of suffering. And so Jesus said to them, 
You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. James and John, they were trying to move up the apostolic pecking order. And it had ticked off the other disciples. Not necessarily because of principle, mind you. The other disciples were probably angry. They didn't think of this idea first. Why don't we send our mother to him? But Jesus called them to himself. And it's interesting how Jesus handles these ambitious disciples. I think you'll find here that, that he doesn't throw water on their fire. In other words, he doesn't quelch their ambition. Rather, he places the fire back in the fireplace. He puts their ambition back in the proper context. You know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be great for God. I want to be great for God. I hope you want to be great for God. There's nothing wrong with having that ambition. As long as you have the proper definition of greatness. Of true greatness. And what Jesus does, he doesn't quelch their ambition. Rather, he defines greatness. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Now Jesus draws a contrast among the ungodly, the pagans, the world without God. Greatness is gauged by a person's control and dominance and manipulation over other people's lives. The Gentiles, quote, lord it over, or they boss people around. That, that's what it means to be great in the world's eyes. To pressure people and to badger people into doing your bidding. They force their agenda on other people. It was once said of a man, His life was now perfection, his ambitions all complete. Never mind which direction, he was in the driver's seat. And for some people, that's all that matters. It's just being in the driver's seat. This is the problem with power. It's a drug. It's addictive. It's intoxicating. It has a life of its own. You've heard it. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And the world loves this power. The idea is to get in the driver's seat. And stay seated in the driver's seat. In verse 26, Jesus says, Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Greatness in God's kingdom is just the opposite. It's not sitting in the driver's seat. It's being the one who washes the car. God measures greatness not by the degree to which I can manipulate folks, but by the degree to which I minister to folks. Greatness doesn't pressure people. It sets people free. It doesn't put people down. It lifts people up. It's not intimidation. It's humiliation. Greatness in God's kingdom is not climbing the ladder. Rather, it's holding the ladder so that someone else can climb. As D.O. Moody once wrote, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many men he serves. In verse 28, Jesus finishes his thought here. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a 
a ransom for many. Jesus is our example. The Son of God had all power coursing through His veins. But what did He do with that power? He reached and He grabbed a bowl and a towel and He washed His disciples' feet. Here was the God who hung the stars in the heavens and yet He never pushed people around. He was so unintimidating that the little children played around Him. And if the Lord of glory came to serve, how can we be justified in any other lifestyle than that of a servant? It's been said, we may easily be too big for God to use, but we can never be too small. Greatness in God's kingdom is not about being big. It's about becoming small. It's not about growing muscle. It's about showing mercy. Greatness in God's kingdom is not about standing up, but about stooping down. It's about serving God through serving others. Verse 29. Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Now Jericho is 18 miles east of Jerusalem. It's in the Judean, the Jordan Valley. It's, in an, it's an oasis really in the Judean wilderness. Jericho is a beautiful city. It's lined with these gorgeous palm trees. Jericho was also called the city of roses because of its beautiful flowers. And Luke 18 tells us that this next event happens as, Jericho, as Jesus was nearing Jericho. Now, Matthew and Mark, they say something different. They say that this event happened as they were leaving Jericho. Luke says it happened as they were entering Jericho. Matthew and Mark say it happens as they were leaving Jericho. The apparent discrepancy is easily resolved when you understand a little history. At the time, there were actually two Jerichos. There was an ancient Jewish city that was just east of a newer Roman city. Matthew and Mark were Jews, and so they referred to the older city. Luke was a Gentile, so he spoke of the newer city. Thus, the event took some place between the two cities as they were leaving the old and as they were entering the new. One other point about Jericho. There was a bush that grew near Jericho that supposedly had medicinal value. And it was used by the ancients to treat blindness. Thus, there was a very large population of visually impaired people hanging out in Jericho. Verse 30. We meet two of them. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now, the Greek word translated cried out is the word krazo. It's the same word used to describe a woman undergoing the pains of childbirth. So I mean, these guys were screaming. Like Amy is about now. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. I mean, these guys are disturbing the peace, mind you. They're making a scene. I'm sure these two blind men had heard of Jesus, but they had never dreamed that they would actually have an opportunity to meet Him. And yet suddenly now, here they are, on the same street with Jesus. And so they begin screaming at the top of their lungs, hoping He'll notice them. Even when they're pressured to shut up by their peers, they remain determined. This could be the only shot to ever reach Jesus. 
And they're going to give it their best shot. You know, here are two men with no eyesight, but who have tremendous insight. Jesus is on their street. And no matter what anyone else thinks, no matter what anybody else says about them, they're going to get his attention. They will not be scared off. They will not be shut up. These blind men are going to keep screaming until Jesus notices them. This is the kind of determination you and I need to show when we seek Jesus. So often we're shut up or scared off. Hey, Jesus is on your street. Do you know who's on your street? Do you know what's available to you tonight, right here, right now? Why would you back off just because of what someone else might think? Why not scream to the top of your lungs until Jesus sees and hears you? And it worked, verse 32. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? Notice, suddenly the sun stands still. <laughs> that happened one other time. Here again, though, the sun stands still. Jesus is headed to the cross. He is 18 miles from Jerusalem. Understand this. The climax of His ministry and God's plan for the ages, the salvation of man, is just around the corner, just down the road. Yet the cries of two blind beggars arrest the Son of God and cause Him to stop. Boy, to me that's encouraging. I mean, that says to me that, that whatever we need, I mean, I mean, God's, there's a song on the radio now, you know, God's too busy. I've been listening to country stations. I got to explain this now. I mean, I mean, the Braves now are on the country station. You know that. And so I, I'm listening to the Braves game and I leave the car radio on. So I come back out and listen to the country station. And there's this horrible song on the country station that says God is too busy. Not the God I know. Not the God that I read about. Not the God that was entering Jericho. He wasn't too busy. I mean, he's on the way to be crucified. He's on the way to save the world from its sin. But he's not too busy for two blind beggars who scream at the top of their lungs and get his attention. And they said to him, Lord, this is what we need, that our eyes may be opened. And so Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight. No LASIK, no surgery, no medicines, no bandages, no corrective lenses. They go from blind as a bat to 20-20 vision. A miracle. Anne May Pinnica was born in 1919. She was born blind. And for 62 years, she lived without sight. She never saw a blue sky. She never saw a green pasture. She never saw a snow-capped mountain. She never saw her husband's face. Then in October of 1991, Dr. Thomas Pettit of UCLA performed a new type of surgery on Mrs. Pinnica. He removed a rare case of congenital cataracts from Mrs. Pinnica's eyes. And for the first time in her 72 years on earth, she could see. After her surgery, she had 20-30 vision. 
good enough for an elderly lady to qualify for a driver's license. And May Pinnica said this, made this statement after her surgery. She says, everything was so much bigger and brighter than I ever imagined. Now imagine these two blind men. They had been blind since birth. Now, suddenly, they can see. Everything is bigger and brighter than they ever imagined. For the first time, they look around the city of roses, and they can see the beautiful flowers there in Jericho. And they can see the palm trees. And they see the deep blue water of the Jordan. For the first time, they can look off, and they see the majestic mountains of Moab across the horizon. But for these men, it was even more special. For the very first sight that they ever saw was the most magnificent sight that you and I will ever see. The face of Jesus Christ. One day, our eyes will be opened. The spiritual cataracts that have so limited our vision, that have limited us to the material and physical world, will suddenly be removed. And immediately we'll see, as we've never seen before, at the first sight in eternity, our eyes will be open and we'll be able to look into the face of our Savior Jesus. Now I want you to notice the last four words in chapter 20. The best has been saved to last. Here is such a beautiful thought. And they followed Him. Their eyes were open. And they set out to follow Jesus. The next day now, they're with Jesus. They're following Him. They arrive in Jerusalem. He's riding His donkey down the Mount of Olives to the hosannas of the crowd. They see this. They see all this happening. The same day, Jesus enters into the temple and He drives out the money changers. And they're there to witness it. They're new eyes. They're, they're fresh vision. They see these things. On Monday... He curses a fig tree. And these blind guys, they actually see it wither with their own eyes. Later in the week, with their opened eyes, they see Jesus arrested. And they see Him crucified, die a bloody death. And then three days later, they're still there among His followers. They see Him rise from the dead, victorious. Over death, hell, and the grave. Hey, these two blind men will see it all. Talk about an eyeful. And here's my point. When Jesus opens your eyes, when you see His face in your heart, hey, it's just the beginning of the wonders and the glories that He wants to reveal to you. Following Jesus is an adventure. There are all kinds of marvels to behold. So, when you journey with Jesus, here's my advice to you. Always keep your eyes wide open. Father, thank you for your word tonight.